Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Josh, one of the pastors here. I'm really glad that you could be here with us uh, this weekend, hopefully tonight and tomorrow morning as well. And if you're already sort of forgotten tomorrow, we, we start at 9 o'clock. Um, and tonight, if at any time you need to get up, uh, restrooms are out this way. Uh, coffee is out there as well. There are some waters and uh, snacks out that way too. You're welcome to get up and, and move out that way anytime if you like uh, throughout the evening. And um, I should say also, my name is Josh, uh, one of the pastors. Did I say that already? Yes, I said that already. It's a, I've always, I've been so worried about not saying good morning. That's been the thing I've been focusing on tonight that... Um, well, if I haven't had a chance to meet you uh, sometime throughout the weekend, I'd love um, to get a chance to meet you. So if you, if you just see me around uh, either tonight or tomorrow morning uh, and we haven't met, I'd love to uh, love you to come up and say, hey, I'll look for you too, but um, we'd love to meet you. The same is true for any of the other staff that are here this weekend too. We'd love to meet you and uh, hopefully you feel at home here. And uh, one of the things uh, that you do at home uh, and in a family is you have some family discussions at different times. And uh, that's really what we're hoping will happen throughout the course of the weekend as we are thinking about a fall conference in general. Our design for this conference is to help us together begin to think through, and how do we navigate the world in which we live? Um, God's people have always found themselves uh, in the midst of societies and cultures that didn't always share the values uh, of the people of God, didn't share the story uh, that we hold so dear, that we see our lives as a part of this grander story. Uh, that's always been the case, and that creates some pressure points, that creates some, uh, some difficulties in trying to figure out how to, how to navigate the world, love our neighbors, care for the people around us, uh, meet people where they're at, uh, talk in a way that uh, hopefully people can understand what we mean. Uh, but it changes those pressure points, those uh, misses, those uh, times where things are confusing, uh, change from age to age. And uh, so we wanted uh, this year to uh, tackle the topic of human sexuality in such a way that hopefully it helps equip you uh, for understanding both God's story uh, and also a little bit of the world in which we live. How do we navigate that for ourselves faithfully? But then also how do we interact with our neighbors and our friends who we can't assume at all, uh, not only that they, don't, that they may not share our perspective, but may not even understand uh, our perspective at all. And uh, so we want to help equip you uh, to that end, and we want to have that conversation uh, together as a church. And we trust and pray um, that over uh, tonight and tomorrow, um, this will be an edifying time um, for all of us. And so that uh, brings me to uh, wanting to introduce to you our speaker uh, tonight uh, and tomorrow. Uh, Robert Cunningham is uh, the founder and the director of Christ for Kentucky. Uh, he's the former senior pastor at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church in Lexington. He was uh, pastor there for 17 years, which is quite a long run, uh, and uh, has been a friend uh, to many of us at New City in our presbytery. We share, if you don't know, that our, our church is, a, uh, our regional government uh, of, of our church is uh, a presbytery, and it's a gathering of churches in a, a particular area. We're part of the Ohio Valley Presbytery, which includes churches in Dayton, Cincinnati, Louisville, and Lexington, and a lot of the small towns in between. So we've had the chance to get to know Robert and Tate's Creek, his church, uh, over the last uh, umpteen number of years since we got started as a church. Uh, but Robert is a graduate of Covenant Seminary. He's a current PhD candidate at the University of Leicester. Les yeah. uh, and he studies, uh, he's studying the role of religion in America's founding era he loves all things Kentucky, and I'm sure we'd love to tell you about anything uh, that you might want to know about Kentucky, including what a commonwealth is, which is confusing to most of us here in the state of Ohio. He's married to Abby, four sons, Holt, Charlie, Owen, and uh, Henry, and I'll have some more things uh, to say about him tomorrow morning, but let's give him a round of applause, welcome him up, and uh, let's hear from Robert. Thanks, Josh. It, it, it's such an honor to be with you this weekend. Looking forward to it. Uh, if you didn't know, I'll be delivering uh, the lectures, uh, one tonight and then two tomorrow morning, but I also am staying the whole weekend, so I'll get to uh, be with you in worship and preach on Sunday. So all weekend together, and I'm really looking uh, forward to that. Uh, the lectures that I'm going to be sharing with you, uh, is, it has kind of become... Uh, I don't know how to say this. I suppose the reality of it is there's no pastor, and I suppose Josh might be included in this, that wants to tackle this issue. So 
a lot of them asked me to come and do it for them. And so, um, so it's kind of become my thing. And so uh, I, I, I limit my commitments to, to just doing this six times a year uh, across the country. But I, I did want to just, the reason I'm saying that is I did want to just say I, I've, I've looked forward to this one uh, the most because a lot of these churches uh, that I travel to to talk on uh, human sexuality and gender, I'm stepping into a place that I don't know. And they always end up being lovely communities and churches and wonderful pastors. But uh, through Josh uh, and, and my friendship with him uh, and, and just knowing what the Lord is doing here in this church, uh, this, this one I feel a little bit more familiar with. And it's just so fun uh, to get to be here with you. Uh, let me begin by being, uh, maybe the best way to say it is upfront and honest about my intentions this weekend. What you might expect from a Christian conference on human sexuality and gender is well-reasoned argumentation defending the historic Christian sexual ethic. Everyone in our society right now is arguing over this issue. I don't have to tell you that. So perhaps you might expect and even want to be uh, further equipped to win that cultural argument. For this to be uh, somewhat of a culture war boot camp where you receive intellectual uh, training to go out and win the culture war. If these are your expectations, uh, then I want to be upfront and honest with you from the start that I'm going to be a very disappointing speaker uh, this weekend. I'm not here to argue. And I'm not here to argue uh, for both principle and practical reasons. On a principle level, I do not believe this is the essence of Christian cultural engagement. I do not believe that our calling from our Lord is to go out and argue our neighbor's into the Christian faith. Apologetics has its role in the Christian project. But at the end of the day, um, people don't really get won over to Christ, much less his uh, sexual ethics by, um, by yelling at them. But on a more practical level, and I think more importantly, and, and this, what I'm about to say might depress you a little bit, but it needs to be said, on a more practical level, I think we need to come to the grips with the fact that the argument is over. As we will see tomorrow morning, we are living in a historical moment that has been building for centuries, really. And the fruit of that movement is a near monopoly on the Western moral order. We're past arguments, is what I'm trying to say. This is too deeply embedded in the moral fabric of our societal life that reason and logic and argumentation no matter how compelling and persuasive you may find them to be, hold no weight in our society. If the human body and the English language are being modified to accommodate sexual and gender ideology, then what chance does Christian apologetics have in this moment? Outside of a revival, um, another you know, American spirit-wrought awakening, which does have the power to reframe social life, and that certainly is possible with our God, and, and we pray for it. But outside something radical like that, um, it, I think it's important for Christians to come to grips that the argument is over. What we believe is officially marginalized at best and persecuted at worst, and we are not going to be able to argue ourselves back into the center of plausibility in society. What an encouraging way to start a conference, right? So, so uh, thanks so much for that. W then what are we here to do if we're not here to argue? Um, I'm here to tell a story. Um, arguments are easily defeated, but beautiful storytelling possesses a peculiar power that transcends debates. So I'm here to tell you a story, and not just any story, but a love story, not just any love story, but an erotic love story, an erotic story 
though severely neglected by the Christian church, happens to be the very story of the Christian church. The English language vainly tries to use one word to describe that which cannot possibly be contained with one word. But the Greek language, the original language of the New Testament, has four words to describe what we call love. The most well-known in Christian circles is agape, divine love. Perhaps a more easily understandable way to describe it would be religious love, the love of worship, I suppose. So, so God's divine love for us and in response our love for God, this is the highest of love to which all other forms of love point. For example, there is storge love, affectionate love. So we say things like, I love that film. I, I love that museum. I love Chipotle. We use it for everything. And this storge love points to the ultimate enjoyment we find in agape love. God takes delight in us. We find our ultimate enjoyment and delight in Him. A good movie, a good dinner, rightly understood and appreciated, can lead us to God. Then there's filio, friendship, love, the love we experience within community. I tell my closest friends all the time that I love them because I do. And this filio love points to the ultimate friendship we have in agape love, communion with God through Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. Our friendships, our communities, rightly appreciated, lead us into agape love. But then there's one more, eros, erotic love, the most sacred love of all, reserved for the most sacred act of all, a love so powerful that God withholds it from us until our bodies are developed enough to house it. Children enjoy storge and filio love, but children cannot handle eros, If introduced too early in our development, its power can actually be traumatic. A love so powerful it can decimate our souls with pain, anger, and righteous jealousy. I celebrate my wife's storge love of art museums. I celebrate Abby's filia love for her friends. But if she had eros for another, I would come undone. What are we to make of the erotic, the love that leads us where no other love can take us, into heights of ecstasy and and depths of intimacy, and most remarkable of all, a love so singular in its power that it can actually create new life. What are we to do with Eros? And more importantly, what has Eros to do with God? Storge leads us to God. Filio leads us to God. What does Eros have to do with Almighty God? The answer is everything. More than anything else, any other form of love, we discover God in the erotic. And that is the love story I wish to tell. I believe it is a story so transcendent in its glory and beauty that if properly proclaimed, and more importantly, if properly practiced, every competing story of love in our culture collapses in its presence. When my, uh, when my first son was about to enter into uh, his teenage years, I began researching Christian uh, books and curriculums that would help me with the talk not the birds and bees, a a, a biology text would suffice for that. What I was seeking was not a biology of human sexuality, but a theology of human sexuality. And it didn't take long, candidly, it didn't take long uh, for, for my research to turn into a very frustrating exercise. I turned to the go to 
uh, Christian evangelical resources. And what I found was fear-based, guilt-driven, sex-suppressing, purity culture teaching. And I wanted more for my, I have four sons, for my four sons. So what I did is I turned to, um, I turned to Christian scholarship outside of our tradition. And it was there that I discovered something that changed my views, not just of sex, but candidly of God. Between 1979 and 1984, Pope John Paul II delivered 139 lectures that would become his magnum opus entitled Theology of the Body. Some of you may have heard of it. John Paul, there in the late 70s, er, early 80s, um, foresaw the distortion and disarray of sexuality that was emerging in Western society, and with a, a prophetic foresight, um, authored a Christian critique. Now, I am clearly a Protestant, and I am a big fan of the Reformation. Yay, Martin Luther, okay? I want to qualify myself here. This is Reformation weekend, and I'm teaching on John Paul II. So if there's elders here, do not bring me up on charges. I love Martin Luther. Yay, 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 Protestantism. Um, if you need credibility here, um, this is not a... This is not a this is not an attempt to, I, this is not a name drop thing, but I do, some, if some people, it makes it uneasy, I do, I do like to share this. Um, uh, before he passed away, the late Tim Keller uh, was graciously uh, offered me some feedback on this material, and we had a good discussion about this as a way forward on sexuality and gender, and he, and he completely affirmed uh, this perspective and said, he, he said, this, this really is, I believe, the way forward in engaging this cultural moment. So I do have the Protestant Pope on my side here. So, so qualifications aside, as you hear me talk about John Paul, the central tenets, there's much I disagree with in his teachings, but the central tenets of his teachings on sexuality and gender are, to me, the most important scholarship the church has produced on this vitally important issue of the day. And so through John Paul's writings, along with the massively helpful commentary of Christopher West, who I also want to give credit to, don't try to give theology a body of try without uh, Christopher West's commentary by your side. I discovered a theology of sexuality our tradition is desperate to discover. And that is what I'm going to offer you this weekend. The theology is constructed around the significance, once again, of eros, of erotic love. And John Paul's scholarship unveils the erotic essentially through the creation, fall, redemption pattern of Scripture, if you're familiar with that which is how I'm going to be framing each of my three talks. But for reasons that will become apparent, instead of just creation, fall, redemption, I'm calling it revelation, redirection, and resurrection. Let's begin this evening with the glorious revelation of Eros. A seminal passage in Theology of the Body is when Jesus was questioned about the issue of divorce. And I'm not going to go, in, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into the details of that passage uh, but Jesus essentially says, yes, Moses granted divorce because the hardness of heart. And then this is the key sentence in John Paul's uh, first kind of act of scholarship where Jesus says, but from the beginning, it was not so. That little phrase is central to his theology of the body. Our first response to every form of sexual brokenness in our lives and in the world, must always be, but from the beginning it was not so. The Christian says to every form of disordered lust, the pornographic images on our screens, the casual hookup culture of our youth, the illicit affair all the way down to the flirtatious text, indeed to the seemingly innocent, lustful glance and fantasy of the mind, to all of it we Christians first begin by saying, but from the beginning it was not so. And yes, we respond to every letter in the LGBTQ plus acronym with, but from the beginning it was not so. Our theology does not start 
with the disorder of fallen creation, but with the beauty of God's original creation. So let's start there, back to the beginning to explore this revelation of Eros. The story actually begins, and this is important, the story actually begins before there is a beginning, originating in God himself. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. On a most fundamental level, this means that we are icons of the divine. We are these special creatures who tell the story of the creator in unique ways. Unlike animals, we are moral creatures because God is moral. Unlike animals, we are creatures with a sense of justice because God is just. Unlike animals, we pursue truth, beauty, and goodness because God is true, beautiful, and good. You get the point. Now, animals mate and procreate, but there is much more to it, obviously, for image bearers. For example, why do we cover our genitalia. We didn't in the beginning more on that in a moment, but we do now. Why? My dog, Millie, just goes about the house and neighborhood flaunting her stuff without a care in the world. Why not us? Because there's something sacred about our genitals, and we know it. They are the physical instruments of eros within us. We weren't created to mate. We were created quite literally to make love. Nothing is more unique to image bearers than erotic love. Now I ask you, is that the one part of us that is not created in the image of God? Is human sexuality the most powerful, intimate, desirous, pleasurable, compelling part of the human existence exempt from God's image? Quite the opposite. The reason why sexuality holds unique prominence within every image bearer of God is because our sexuality is a window into the deepest mysteries of God. Let me explore that mystery and show you what I mean. The verse I read is a fascinating one. God, singular in the Hebrew, said, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. So the Trinity is there from the beginning which means foundational to our understanding of of image-bearing creatures, is a Trinitarian creator. God is one God, in essence, in three distinct persons. Trinitarian math is one plus one plus one equals one. Make sense? It does not make sense. God is, by definition, inscrutable, incomprehensible. And yet, despite the admittedly inscrutable nature of the Trinity, only this Christian doctrine allows God to be complete and sufficient in himself. Because God is three in one, the creator is not dependent upon his creation. When God says, let us create man, he did not say that out of need. The scriptures say God is love. He is love. He does not need love. A non-Trinitarian God cannot be love in himself. For example, consider storge love that I reference. I love Chipotle. I love tacos. You You do too, probably. The love of admiration. Well, it's not like God was previously bored and needed to create to admire and enjoy something. He has forever reveled in admiration of his own glory. Consider philia love, love of friendship and community. God was not previously lonely and needed to create us to experience community. He has forever existed in perfect communion with himself. Well, does that love that he has forever enjoyed in himself include Eros? Far more than including Eros. The reason why God designed erotic love with unique significance for his image bearers is because erotic love is the closest we will come to grasping the God whose image we bear. John Paul describes the Trinity as an eternal exchange of love. Forever God has been sharing and receiving love in himself. And when I say love, 
I mean love. Love in its fullest and highest form. Not some generic, boring, stoic, conceptual love. I mean ecstasy. I mean rapture. I mean an eternal, intoxicating exchange of endless bliss. Now, this is tough for us, considering our preconceptions and experiences with sex. But we are made in the image of God, not the other way around. You're going to hear me say this a lot this weekend, lest I fall into heresy. We dare not sexualize the Trinity. Instead, the Trinity has given us sex as an icon, a glimpse into the Trinity. And the glimpse is this. An eternal exchange, a forever sharing and receiving of love's highest ecstasy. We believe the scriptures, as Christians, we believe the scriptures to be the infallible revelation of God. Do we not? How do we get to know God? We read our Bibles. Well, why is Song of Solomon in your Bible? May I read to you some God-inspired passages from that book. (laughs) Solomon says to his lover, How delightful is your love, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. She says to Solomon, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow upon my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choicest fruits. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyard. I am a wall And my breasts are like towers. My beloved thrusts his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I opened for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. The word of the Lord. You're not a thanks be the God, people. Am I supposed to thanks be to God that one? (laughs) We believe the scriptures reveal God to us. Well, God inspired in the canon of Holy Writ the description of lovers intoxicated on erotic love. Why? Because the erotic in us is a window into the eternal exchange of love he has forever enjoyed in himself. So then why did God create in the first place? Why, if he is perfectly satisfied in triune love, did God create us to share in his love? God did not create us because he needs more love. God created us to share in his love that he has forever enjoyed. So how do we share in the love of God that has forever been enjoyed? Let's return to Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So how did he craft his image? It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is something uniquely significant about male and female when it comes to the image of God. More specifically, it's the uniqueness of male... And the uniqueness of female that unlocks the mystery of God's image. So let's turn to Genesis 2 and see God fashion the uniqueness of male and female. It starts with Adam. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. 
So by fashioning Adam from the earth, God did nothing different with Adam that he did not do with every other living creature. And so there absolutely is much that we find in common with the animal kingdom. And this is obvious to the biological sciences. If I have any scientists in the room, they will say this is so obvious to the biologies. But what is not obvious to the biological sciences, but is very obvious to the arts and humanities, is what God does next. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The breath of God fills this newly formed animal, and the animal ceases to be an animal forevermore. He is now the image of God, Imago Dei. Or is he? Because it would seem the image is not yet complete. As we already read, Genesis says, male and female, he created them in God's image, which is why after Adam is formed, God says, it's not good yet. It is not good for man to be alone. Quote, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, what's so interesting about that, and this is very important, is if God wanted to make another image bearer, he could have just repeated the process. But Eve is the only living creature created not from dust, not from dirt, but from another creature. And this is profoundly significant. Remember, the Trinity is one in essence, yet yet three distinct persons. Well, Eve is now the same essence of Adam, but a distinct purpose, person. And notice the bodily emphasis in Adam's response. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This bodily emphasis. He sees in her body something of himself. Not just the biology of her body, but the theology of her body. The meaning of his body, the story of his body, makes sense when he sees her body. And the story he discovers is in the differences of their bodies. He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And yes, her bones and flesh are exactly the same as his, except in one and only one area. They all have the exact same features, except in one place. There is only one area where Adam's body doesn't make sense by itself. And there is only one area where Eve's body does not make sense by itself. Each body bears one part that is incomplete. But standing there, face to face, naked and without fallen shame, the glorious mystery and the story of their body comes to life. When Adam says, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he is saying, essentially, finally, I make sense. Because he discovers something that can only be discovered in the presence of Eve. Adam did not need Eve to understand his body in every area but one. His eyes made sense by themselves. His legs, arms, feet, Hands, his whole body was complete in itself except for one and only one area. The male bodily system and the female bodily system depend upon each other in only one way and only properly function in union with the other's differences. I'm talking about genitalia here if you haven't put that together. Even down to the cellular level. Every cell in your body has 46 chromosomes with one exception. The sperm cell has 23. The ovum has 23. Friends, in discussing genitals, we are on holy ground. We are entering into the very heart of the Trinity's eternal exchange of love. And in this way, the genitals tell a story that nothing else in all of creation has the capacity to tell. 
It is true that all of creation speaks of its creator in some unique ways. The heavens declare the glory of God, and indeed this is true. Look upon a starry night, and you will get a glimpse of God's glory. Look upon a majestic sunset, and you will get a glimpse of God's beauty. Look upon mighty mountains, and you will get a glimpse of God's power. But the vision of God's love, the unveiling of the mystery of God's eternal exchange of triune love, this he has entrusted to his image bearers as male and female. The genitals of image bearers. The complementary instruments of erotic love are the nearest we get to the heart of the divine trinity. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, but the genitals declare the love of the Lord. And the genitals declare that story of love when they come together. The love of God is fully unveiled in the next verse. And the two became one flesh. The one flesh union of male and female. When God's image participates in its own exchange of love. There in that sacred exchange, the mystery of the Trinity's love is revealed. Actually, there's one more step to that mystery. God is one in essence and three persons. Eve was taken from Adam, thus the same in essence, yet two persons. Perhaps you're wondering how male and female as two can accurately reflect the three persons of the Trinity. Well, who said male and female are alone in their one flesh union? They won't be for long. The final and fullest expression of their erotic union is that glorious moment when the only incomplete cells of the male unite with the only incomplete cells of the female and a new image bearer of God is conceived. You want to talk about sanctity of life? In that microscopic moment that we cannot see, we actually see eternity's love. We now have three distinct persons, one in essence, enveloped in love. And so when God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, that multiplication is not a byproduct of erotic love. It completes erotic love. All right, so putting it all together, and then we're going to close. The problem with uh, much of Christian teaching on sex is that it begins after Genesis 3. It allows our experiences, and we're going to get into this tomorrow. I know you come here. This is the nature of power of eros. The most profound pains you come into this room bearing probably have to do with something in this realm. And I'm sympathetic towards that. I'm going to be sensitive to it as I discuss this, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. But the problem with much of Christian teaching on sex is that begins after Genesis 3, and it allows our experiences with fallen sexuality to dictate the terms of the discussion. And this way, our starting point rests on the assumption that sex is gross or even bad, perhaps even traumatic. We will have none of that this weekend. Erotic love is the high point of God's creation. The Trinity has forever existed in an eternal exchange of love, and the Trinity has given us, His image bearers, this tangible icon of revelation into what He has forever enjoyed. When male and female, within the safe and sacred boundary of nuptial vows, are once again naked without shame, intoxicated by the unique arousal only that naked sight affords, Joining their genitals in one flesh union as ecstasy rises to heights nothing else in this world can offer, culminating in orgasmic euphoria, and that orgasm literally creates a new image bearer of God. That, brothers and sisters, is the closest you will ever get to the eternal life of the Trinity. Blessed be the name of the Lord for his glorious gift of sex and gender. Now, before I close, I want to offer a brief pastoral word um, to a particular group of friends. I understand talking about the revelation of Eros and all of its beauty and, and glory is difficult for all of us in unique ways. You see, because the erotic holds 
such prominence in the life of image bearers, it then becomes the focal point of our greatest shame and pain. For example, I just talked about conception as the completion of erotic love, and I can't imagine how that lands on those struggling with infertility. And we're going to get into and explore a fallen eros tomorrow, but there is one group of friends I'm heavy-hearted for in particular, the single among us. Perhaps you're wondering what a conference on erotic love has to do with your life. And perhaps you fear you will never get to experience the glory that I just revealed. I want you to stick with me this weekend. There's actually a very significant portion of theology of the body devoted specifically to you. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, heck, even John Paul himself embraced the vocation of celibacy. And so clearly, that must be a part of this love story, and indeed it is. Tomorrow, I'm going to show you that you are actually the heroes of erotic love, a window into the greatest meaning of eros. And I just felt the need to state that up front, lest you think this has nothing to do with you. Now, leading us tomorrow, we all know that in chapter 3 of Genesis, an enemy enters the story to wage war against God via God's image bearers. And the enemy is described as crafty. Well, consider this. If indeed erotic love is the greatest picture of God's eternal love, then I ask you, where would you suppose a crafty enemy is going to direct his attack? The enemy wants no one to, love, to know the love of God. And therefore, the enemy seeks to destroy Eros, the icon of God's love. Therefore, nowhere, this is true scripturally, as I will show tomorrow, and this is true historically, nowhere are the consequences of the fall experienced more than in our sexuality. We see that in scripture, we see that in history, and certainly where we find ourselves in this unprecedented age of fallen sexuality. I mean, considering all that I have said this evening, Could you imagine the implications upon the love story that I just shared, this story of Eros, if somehow a previously unthinkable reality was constructed where gender is separated from genitals? The reality is that if erotic love bears unique significance to the story of God's creation, then we should expect it to likewise hold unique significance to the story of fallen creation. If you want to know what is most sacred to God, find what is most desecrated by the enemy. And tomorrow we are going to explore erotic love's desecration. Yes, in the life of our culture, I will go there, but even more significantly in your life and mine. All right, let me pray. And then I don't know how we are on time, Josh. We need to get out of here or question. Okay, okay, and if you don't, my experience on, in giving these talks is you're like, I got no questions, get me out of here. But if, if you have questions, we can do questions. Let's pray. Our Father, weighty, heavy, personal, vulnerable, perhaps even shameful, traumatic topic. But I pray that you would overcome our experiences in this fallen world of human sexuality with the glory of the original design, and it is glorious. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are love. You don't need love. God is love. You have forever, ever enjoyed an eternal exchange of giving and receiving love. And we just count it an eternal blessing that you would share your love. But I pray that we would leave here surrounded by the spirit of comfort spirit that is tender, spirit that is gracious, that leads us into pastures and still waters, that you would guide our discussion this weekend and guide our thoughts and emotions this evening. We praise you for um, sex. We praise you for gender. And we ask your forgiveness, not for what the world has done to it, but we ask your forgiveness for what we have done to it. Praise your name. Lift high the glory of the original design 
as tomorrow we lament what we have done and then end with your amazing story, rescuing story, where you, Jesus, entered into the love story to save your bride. Prepare our hearts for that good news and be gentle with us this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I was joking. If you do have questions, uh, I'm, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to field those uh, with, the, with the caveat that um, there's a good chance maybe you, you'll ask a question. I'll say, just come back tomorrow. I'll, I'll talk about that. But if there's any questions, I'm, I'm happy to field that this, this evening. Yes? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough to find a culture, historically speaking, that, um, uh, that, that uh, just full-on nudity culture. Uh, there are certainly cultures that they don't cover as much as, as we do, if that's what you're asking. Um, but again, I hate to say this, but come back tomorrow. Um, <laughs> But one of the things I'm going to say is just as just as the nakedness is so prominent in the creation um, narrative, and, and if you've read the story, you know this, but maybe it's going to take on new meaning now. You'll see how nakedness and sewing loincloths and covering that part of themselves is so central to the fallen narrative as well. There is just something undeniably um, powerful about that within image bearers. And sadly, after the fall, there is um, John Paul, I'll give you a little preview, but John Paul says that um, the, the glory of the genitals uh, now need protection, and we intrinsically know this uh, because love has been replaced by lust, and now they need protection rather than display. But I'll talk a lot more about that tomorrow. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as I was getting into, that's a good question, as I was getting into, to repeat that if you didn't hear it, uh, what about all the other loves? Are they not icons of the divine? And, and, and am, I, am, I, am I overstating my argument that erotic love in particular um, is, is a uniquely significant icon of God's love. Um, and I struggled a little bit with, uh, that, was, that was a question I asked a lot as I was kind of weighing through uh, John Paul's scholarship. And um, honestly, what convinced me um, that there is something unique here is less about what I was reading in him, but more about how I then returned to passages of Scripture to see uh, how significant sex, sexuality, and candidly, the genitals are in Scripture, particularly, I mean, you know, we'll talk about this t- tomorrow, but that crazy sign he ordained as the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, and the prominence of the womb, and barrenness, and uh, just how central sexuality is uh, to the Scriptures themselves is what really convinced me of that. But then beyond that, I just started to re- I just started to realize that and 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 recognize and, it, and it's something we naturally intuit, but it, it's it's interesting to start to observe it, just how prominent this love is to our stories in particular. Like I said, um, you know, my wife has storge love uh, for art museums. That's an icon of that's a that's an icon of the divine, the 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 admiration and glory of God. The, she has philia love for friendships. That's an icon in itself. But if she had eros for another, I could I would come undone. Um, and so there's just a unique prominence in our in our stories and in scripture to this, um, because it, it's the highest ecstasy and the and the greatest desire. Uh, Freud, I'll talk to you tomorrow, Freud was picking up on something, right, that at the end of the day, human beings are compelled by sexual desire. He's on to something there that's very biblical 
historically speaking. So just its unique prominence as an icon. It's not to say that others don't point us to God. It's just there's a unique experience here. A good question. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. Yeah. Um, particularly with the female body, I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk a lot about um, the significance of the female body tomorrow. Um, and in other conferences that I've done, it just depends on how many talks I have and stuff like that. But one of the talks that that, that I, I, I I do get into quite a bit is. Um, um, is the female body in particular and what evangelicals have done with the female body in particular and sex in general. And, and what, I, what I say is that, um, you know, on one, uh, on, on one end of the... Sp- basically what I say is that, um, that a sinful world doesn't know what to do with the glory of the female body. And so the, the, female, the, the glory of the female body and sex in general. But when we say sex cells, we're... we're we're pretty much saying the female body cells. Um, what, 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 what we do is, is, is sexuality in general and, and the glory of the female body, the unique glory of the female body in particular, is caught between two extremes. On one end, it is, um, it is prostituted um, by our world for selfish, uh, for selfish game, exploitation, abuse, and all of that. Um, on the other end, uh, religions suppress female glory and sex because they can't handle it either. One's prostituting it, other, prostituting it, the other's suppressing it, and neither of them get it. And the extreme forms, religious forms, would be um, would be more, um, you know, you know, more extreme forms of like Islamic culture or whatnot that just says this thing is just too glorious and dangerous. We have to just completely cover it. But you see that in evangelical uh, fundamentalism and purity culture is the same kind of line of thinking is you have to cover this thing because it can't, it's too dangerous. It's too scandalous. And so I think the religious contribution to this whole thing is a, is, is a fear and suppression of the glory, um, and rather than letting the glory shine in in its God-given beauty. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we suppress it. We, we're feared of it. We, we, we make it gross. We don't want to go there, whatnot. So, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, Josh. Thank you for asking that question. Thank you for that creation. Thank you for that creation. I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, well created question there, Sovereign Josh. Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, because it's huge. Listen. This is another, I'm a student of culture, and so this is getting a little off topic, but it fits. Please understand, um, uh, Cultural, evangelical cultural engagement is being discipled in the ways of fear. Um, we are being, you know, the algorithms are feeding us fear. Politicians pick up on it or are exploiting fear. Um, our thought leaders are fear, fear, fear. And, um, and the danger of a fear-based cultural engagement is that it automatically turns people into enemies to be defeated rather than neighbors to love. What you fear, you view as an enemy, and you will want to defeat that. And in this issue in particular, the cancel culture stuff that's out there, in this issue in particular, there is so much fear. And the reason why I'm saying that is because um, in my experience, I do this a lot. Um, I, speak, I, I, do, I speak like this. 
I, um, I've, I've written, um, written op-eds that have been published across the state of Kentucky. I've podcasted about this. I've published about this. I, I talk about this. The only people I get in trouble with are Christians. I have not once been canceled. I have not once gotten a uh, threatening email from the LGBTQ community. I've gotten questions. I've gotten, I'd like to hear more about this, but, um, but, but really the, the unofficial leader of the LGBT uh, community in Lexington got a, got a hold of my teaching, reached out to me and said, I, I really want to meet with you. Um, and we sat down and what she said, and I'm getting to the answer to your question, <laughs> to your created question. Um, she sat down, and, um, and I'm not saying this, this, this is something particularly compelling about uh, my teaching and my ability to communicate. It's more of what Josh is getting at here is but where I start. And this is what she said. I, I, disagree with, um, I disagree with your ethics. I disagree with everything you believe. I know you're an evangelical. She Googled PCA, and yeah, yeah. And so, uh, and, and, um, and she said, I disagree with everything. But, quote, this is different. I don't know what to make of this. Again, you're telling a different story. This is a story. It, she, it, it, she, said, she said to me, she said, I don't agree with this, but I see why this is so important to you all and why you believe what you believe. And she asked me, this is just an anecdote. Uh, she asked me, she said, you have four sons. I said, yeah. She said, what if one of them... Uh, grows up and identifies as a um, and identifies as a woman. What are you going to do? And I said, Well, I will. I will simultaneously love and disagree. And she said, You can't do that. And I'm going to explain why they respond this way tomorrow. You can't do that. You can't love them and disagree with their identity. And we're going to get into the identity stuff tomorrow. You can't love. You can't simultaneously love and disagree. It's not possible. If you love them, you have to affirm. And I said, okay, um, what if one of your children grows up and converts to evangelical Christianity and holds to historical sexual ethic? What will you do? And she said, love and disagree. <laughs> I said, yeah, let's be friends. <laughs> so anyway, um, the point I'm trying to make here is um, I, in my experience, I get in trouble with Christians on these talks. The, the, the world around us finds it refreshingly different. That I'm not here to argue. I'm here to tell you the story of biblical sexuality. And when I start there with that beautiful picture and imagery that's so rich in the creation account, they may not agree with it. But every time they have left saying, oh, that's, that's different. That's different. And I think leading with beauty rather than destruction and desecration matters so much. Now, I will say, as, as a word, I, I will say that the first time I, I, uh, I delivered these talks, there was somebody who, who got word of it, was very curious, and, um, and came, and she, um, she identified a, as, as a lesbian um, and was... Um, and was on track to uh, marry her girlfriend, and she sat in the back and listened and cried the whole time, and I didn't really do this. She didn't want to talk to me. She kind of ran in and out, ran in and out, and um, about three months ago, I got a random email that um, she, she heard this story, rethought everything, and and, uh, and, and, and reimagined her sexuality. She said, I still struggle with these things and stuff like that, but I, I just wanted you to know that um, I'm, I'm marrying my boyfriend um, here in another month, and I just wanted to tell you that I, I was just listening in and heard it. So I, I, it's not just I agree, disagree. We have, we have testimonies of, wow, I can get behind that too. So anyway, good question, yeah. Um, well, well, this it, it, when I when I travel to speak, depending upon the ethos and the cultural 
mission engagement of the church that's hosting it or the conference that's hosting it, that determines whether people come or not. Um, so the one that got the most attention was when we did it actually, and uh, the first time I did this was at my home church in Lexington at TCPC. And because I had already entered into the, uh, into the arena of public thought leadership in Kentucky and, and, and was, right, was regularly contributing to um, the Lexington Herald leader with opinion columns and um, doing interviews and things like that, um, there was already a buzz about this, this evangelical Presbyterian guy is coming at this different, and it created a buzz. And the churches that I've done this, where I've done this, that have a presence in the community that is kind of known as a warm, welcoming, friendly thing, um, tends to see people have some curiosity. I wonder how they're going to have this conference. Um, and then, uh, you know, other churches that maybe don't necessarily have that doing. But, but most, a lot of churches, I, I agree with what, a lot, I, I actually think this is the wise way to do it, the way you're doing, is just a kind of internal family church discussion, to me, is the best way to do it, um, because there's a freedom for kind of family talk and gather together, and then, and then you can go forth and engage in that. Yeah. From a Genesis 1 perspective? Yeah. Well, Genesis 1 perspective, that's an easy answer. It's, <laughs> we're going with one man, one woman. Uh, if you're asking what do you do with as the, scripture, as, the script, as the story progresses, polygamy becomes a, a big part of the story. Right. How do we know that's actually going to Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so listen, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow. Uh, polygamy won't come up, so I will talk about it tomorrow. So, you have to understand that, um, that the script, so much of, of the Christian scriptures are, pre, are, are descriptive, not prescriptive. They're describing things, they're not prescribing things. And one of the beauty about our holy writ is its vulnerability and honesty with the story, the way it's just really honest about the characters of the story. It's not prescribing, it's describing. So much of scripture is kind of like these gritty films and novels that we, you know, that we kind of get caught up in that are, that, that are just told, and you, you know, you like the stories that are told in the most gritty, authentic ways. You get caught up in it, and it's sad, but what you're doing is you're watching a character kind of come undone, and the point of such storytelling is for you to say, is not to emulate that. It's not prescribing that as the, as the way. It's describing this, and so you're supposed to watch that unfold and say, I don't want to, you know, break bad. <laughs> I don't want to go down that road. But, but you're watching these choices as they come undone. So much of the scriptures are like that. We're supposed to look at our patriarchs and see the utter devastation that comes from their polygamy and say, that is not God's design. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you asking me like in public high schools? Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not expecting public high schools to follow, <laughs> follow John Paul's theology of the body. Um, if you're asking like what, what do I think is a, uh, appropriate teaching in schools? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, wish, I wish our educational system would go, would, would go back to the biology of human sexuality and get away from theology of sexuality, because that's what they're doing. They're doing a theology of the body as well. It's just that their theology is, a, is, a, is, is rooted in a story that I'm going to tell you tomorrow of how we got to this cultural moment. So they're, they're espousing a theology. We'll call it a philosophy. They're, called, they're, they're espousing a philosophy of sexuality rather than the biology of sexuality. I think it's very appropriate for schools to educate on the biology of human sexuality. Um, but I, I, think, I think parents, uh, religious communities, 
um, I think that's where you, I think that's where it's appropriate for children to be exposed to a theology or philosophy of human sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you might could. Yeah. You all are, an, I like this. You all are a very eager group. Yeah. Holt, would you like to come up here and answer that question? Um, so, uh, well, I mean, family devotions are um, feeling bad that we don't do them enough. Uh, can we scramble them together and get my teenage son and my six-year-old son to somehow sit still and listen to us talk? Honestly, I don't know if they're getting much, but it makes us feel better about ourselves as parents. That's family devotions and, and the Cunningham household. Um, how do we do this? I have four sons. Um, he's already done it. I, I, I'm my second, who's about to turn 13, um, I'm going to do it with them. We do the birds and bees early on. So Abby and, my, Abby and I, my wife and I, um, we do the, the biology of, the, of human sexuality pretty early on. And then once puberty hits, again, because of what I said here, puberty is when God is making the body ready for the power of Eros. So once they start entering into puberty, I take each of my sons away, and um, they, they get a very condensed, ch- dumbed-down version of, of what I'm saying this weekend. Um, they get that um, away with me, and then we have this whole... Um, he's, he's on it now. He's, he's, it's killing him now. But then I have like kind of this, um, basically I say you can't drive or date until you complete this manhood journey. And it's a pretty extensive like program um, that I put together, a curriculum I put together of things he has to do and all this crazy stuff that he hates, but he's doing it. Uh, so yeah, I've got a whole thing that I do with each of them. And, and I know this question is going to come because she's just asked it and I, this happens every conference I um, I have had many uh, people who have said, can, can, can you put together, write, record something um, for teenagers on this? And the answer is, I don't have that yet. Uh, it is a project that I'm going to be working on um, in the upcoming years. So hopefully we'll have something that we could share with parents to empower them to, to have these kinds of talks with their kids. Yeah, good question. Okay, was that the last question? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> It's, now, let me preface this. I have four boys. Um, I'm working with a, with a, um, there's a, there's a, there's a therapist out of Orlando, a Christian therapist out of Orlando that she, I, she, she's an incredible writer. And she's put a lot of thought into female sexuality. I'm asking her to partner with me to write the female stuff, but I can guarantee the young boys version of it will be early 2024. Are we going to 2024? Yeah, early 2024. The, the, the women's version, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were early. Sorry. Um, how early do I do the birds and the bees? Uh, pretty early. Uh, not three. Not three. But I, I will talk about... Um, uh, yeah. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that more tomorrow. Um, but we do start dripping some of this stuff. We didn't do it with our firstborn and stuff, but once I got into all of this and started rethinking all of this, little things like with my, um, with my youngest, um, we, uh, we stopped calling them private parts and we started calling them sacred parts. Things like that. Just dripping that kind of stuff um, in there pretty early. And then um, you know, uh, nine... I think nine is when we did the birds and the bees talk. Okay, we got to finish. I know.